Welcome to the Lamb's Chapel. Take your Bibles. Join me in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 17. We're going to go as far as verse 24 today, all right? Ephesians 4, 17, where we're going to begin. Several years ago, I, I started in local church ministry, and uh, I, was, I had not been married very long, Deanna and I, and, and uh, one of my early jobs was at a, uh, at a large church. I was on staff there. And they informed me that my payday was going to be on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Now, Deanna and I were accustomed to uh, living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, we knew the feeling of, of, of that moment where there, you know there's a little too much month at the end of the money. Have you been there? You know, either you can remember that or you're living there right now. But we can, we can relate to that. And there was one instance at this church where I knew I was getting paid on Monday but it was not quite the weekend yet. So we were going into the weekend and I was just gonna have to wait because it was, it was rather tight. There was not much in the old bank account. And not only was there not much in the bank account, there was not much in the fridge, all right? And so we just kind of had to make do. And I asked Deanna, I was like, can I just go out and pick something up? She's like, no, no. She was kind of the financial brains of the family. And she's like, we got an overdraft last month. We can't afford those fees. We're just going to have to make it work. I'm like, okay. And so I'm, you know, you know that feeling where you're, you're looking in your fridge and you're looking at what's in there and you're like, what can I make out of this? And, and nothing seems to go together. You're like, what can I make out of jalapenos and yogurt? You know, like what? And so we're, we're just toughing it out and, and it gets to be Sunday night we're almost there, but I'm starving. I'm like, you know what? Forget this noise. There's, there's a quarter box of Cheerios in there. I'm going to the grocery store. And I'm going to get a half a gallon of milk. You with me or not? And I, I was like, you want some O's? And she's like, okay, fine, go. So I went to the grocery store. I get the half gallon. I come back. She's like, do you think you overdrafted? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. She's like, well, I'm going to check. So she gets online, and she, she discovers that not only had I not overdrafted, I'd already gotten paid. And I'd gotten paid on Friday. Because it turns out Monday was a holiday, and so they paid me early. Wasn't that nice? And so this whole time, I'm looking ahead to payday. Payday had already happened. We could have been enjoying the benefits of payday all weekend long. We were chewing our fingernails. We could have been chowing down on Outback. And now you know how we get into the problem in the first place, you know? And I want you to know that often in the Christian life, I believe that we have this kind of a problem where we are looking ahead to a blessing thinking one day we're gonna partake in that and we already have access to it. Sometimes a Christian will pass away and, and people will say of that departed believer, they'll say, well, now they're, now they're experiencing eternal life. Now they've inherited eternal life. Well, folks, according to Scripture, eternal life is yours the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's present tense. He goes on, he says, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed, past tense, from death to life. You've already crossed over. You've got eternal life now. See, eternal life is not about where you're going. It's about who you are. It's about the identity that you presently have. And it's not merely about your, your uh, condition in, in, in the terms of your security in Christ, your salvation. It's about your whole being. 
It's about how you are to live. And this is the big overarching thought that I want you to get in your notes because at the top it's printed there, receiving eternal life is not just a change in terms of our final destination, but our very being. God has changed you from the inside out. Your conversion as a believer was exactly that. It was a conversion. You have been totally and utterly transformed. Now, whether or not you have believed that, understood that, embraced that, accepted that, put that into practice is another matter, but that is your reality. And that's what I want us to talk about today. And and, and I want to look at the difference between the old self and the new self. Now, if you've been paying attention in our Ephesians study, you might be thinking, well, haven't we already done that? Didn't we talk about that? What, What I was then and what I am now? I did go through that with you as Paul unfolded that in the early chapters, but it was really just a a bunch of theological truth for you to know. Here is where we put that truth into action and we begin to live that out. And so that's gonna be our discussion today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I just pray your blessing upon our time of the word today. I pray it will motivate us, inspire us, uh, and change us, Lord. Uh, This truth, to, to embrace what we are in your sight And may we live differently because the truth is, God, that as you intend for us to worship, serve, and obey, and honor you in heaven one day, you intend for us to worship, serve, obey, and honor you right here, right now. And you've empowered us to be able to do so. In Christ's name we pray from a heart of gratitude. Amen. All right, let us look now at the contrast between our old self and our new self. We're gonna dive right into verse 17. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul says, I testify in the Lord. And what he's talking about here, the first contrast that you need to understand between your old self and your new self in your notes, number one, there's a different lifestyle. A different lifestyle. Paul says, I testify in the Lord. That's a very important phrase. He doesn't say I testify of my own knowledge. I testify of my own experience. He's saying, no, no, this isn't something that I've come up with. This isn't something I've concocted that I think will work well for you. I am the Lord's representative. This is his way, his plan. And your philosophy of life cannot come from anywhere but God. It cannot be based on your best guess. You don't want my best guess. I hope that you haven't come here today to hear what Pastor Scott thinks about stuff because you know this, this few pounds of fallen matter that I got inside my skull is not gonna get us where we need to go. That's why I like to preach verse by verse from the scripture. I like to let it unfold so that you know this isn't from me, this is from God. It's right out of his word. You don't want my best guess. Have you ever operated according to your best guess? You ever go to the grocery store, pick out some fruit, and you see people picking out fruit? What are they doing? Oh, they're slapping it. You know, they're squeezing it. They're holding it up. They're looking underneath for some kind of yellow spot, something like that. They're taking the cantaloupe, and they're rolling them down the aisle, you know. Oh, no, that one's fading left. Here, hand me another one, you know. They're looking at the melon. I love watermelon. We used to go to a farmer's market back in uh, Modesto, and People be doing that sort of stuff. They're listening. Is it, does that sound hollow to you? Does that sound hollow? And I'm like, you know, I tried all that. And I get home and sometimes it's good and sweet. Sometimes I got a mushy melon. And so I see the guy that runs the farmer's market. And I'm thinking, well, he looks like he would know. He, he's very grizzled, very leathery. 
And so I say, excuse me, bud, I, can you tell me how to pick a good melon? I, I, what's the secret? What's the secret? He goes, you want to know the secret? I'm like, yeah. He goes, the secret is, it doesn't matter. I said, what? He goes, yeah, people come in here, they slap it, they you know, listen to it, they squeeze it. He goes, it's luck of the draw. Nobody really knows. That's all malarkey. Can you imagine? And yet we're out there just doing our best. Folks, we cannot live according to our best guess. You don't pick a good melon that way and you don't live life that way. We have to root our testimony in the Lord. Paul says, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk a certain way. What's he talking about when he says you must not walk a certain way? He's talking about your lifestyle, the way you live your life. There is to be a distinction between the way you live your life and the world. And we often are to live in distinction to the world and often in conflict with the world. And so Paul highlights the two groups that are distinct. And he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles. And so this is point two. In your notes, you've got a different citizenship. A different citizenship. The word Gentiles literally is the word nations. Nations. If you read Genesis and you read the account of the Tower of Babel, leading up to that, you got all the, the peoples of the earth. They have, they have uh, descended from Noah after the flood. And they're all clumped together in one spot. God says, scatter, fill the earth, multiply. They say, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay right here. Going to build a tower to heaven. Going to be as as high as God. He says, no, you're not. You're not going to scatter. I will scatter you. And he confuses their languages. And so they are dispersed in accordance with the varying languages of each people group. And they become various nations. And he takes one group out of all that uh, uh, mass of humanity. And he makes a promise to a man. And he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And I will be your God. And you will live in distinction with the other nations. And so now all the peoples of the earth are divided into Jew and Gentile. The, the, the people of God and the pagan nations, because the main distinction is that Jewish people descended from Abraham would worship Jehovah, the one true God. All the other nations were gonna be these polytheistic pagan nations. Paul's saying, don't live like the pagans. You say, well, I've I'm, I'm, I'm never been surrounded by pagans. I've certainly never been a pagan. Well, yes, you have, and yes, you were. You absolutely were. You think you need a temple and an altar and some incense to worship a false god? Our world is filled with false gods, isn't it? We worship money, we worship fame, we worship power, we worship sex, we worship entertainment, we worship sports, status, we even worship religion sometimes. Those are all things that can be false gods. In fact, I would submit to you that anything that you spend more time thinking about than Jesus Christ, that's your false idol. And so we can engage in this. And so he says, this is not a practice of a people uh, that defines us. We, we, we do not belong to that people. We've got a different citizenship. Our citizenship is of heaven. I was born in Oklahoma. I am an American by birth. And then I was born again. And now I'm a citizen of heaven. And so I've been born twice. We who have been born twice are not to live as those who have been born once. And so we don't live according to the consensus of those around us. And Paul says we're not to walk like the Gentiles. Why? Because he says that they walk in the futility of their minds. There's a futility there. And this is the third point of contrast in your notes. We've got a different outcome. We have a different outcome. The word futility, uh, matayates in the Greek, it's translated three ways. 
empty, perverse, and failure. And that is why you're not to walk like the Gentiles. Their way, the way of the world, is a proven failure. Their standard of right and wrong, it doesn't come from God. It comes from their own depraved logic and reason. And they think, you know, God ought to be this. And they think life ought to be this. And so they conduct themselves. And they say they're searching for truth. But they never quite arrive at it because of the futility of their minds. It's like that old song by U2. You know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Man has never found it. He's always been after it. And yet, he he appears rather confident in his pursuit. Sometimes he looks like he knows where he's going. Because man can, man, we can put up up a facade. We can have two feet planted firmly in midair, but we can be as confident and you can't tell us that we're wrong. I went to the Rose Bowl a few years ago. I love college football. And uh, the Rose Bowl, they call that the the granddaddy of them all. And it really is. It's an an awesome experience. I had a blast and my team lost. (laughs) And I still had a blast. But the Rose Bowl has a long and storied history. Back in 1929, Cal was playing Georgia there in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. And uh, Cal had a, a starting center. He was a junior by the name of Roy Regals. And about midway through the second quarter, Cal's got the ball. They're, they're running back, Stumpy Thomason. Isn't that a great name for a running back? Stumpy Thomason. I identify with that guy. Stumpy, <laughs> he's got the ball. He's running. He gets hit. He goes down. Ball squirts out. There's Roy. He sees the ball. And it occurs to him. He gets a glimpse of glory. This is his big moment. Why? Centers, the only time centers ever touch the ball, they got to snap it. He's like, what? this is an opportunity. And he scoops up that ball and he starts to run with that ball. He gets hit and some tackles glance off of him and he, he, he opens his eyes and he can see the end zone. It's right up there in front of him and there's, there's nothing impeding his path and he takes off and he's just chugging. He's chugging along. He's thinking, oh man, this is incredible. I, a center never gets to do this. This is gonna be the greatest day of my life. This is gonna be the greatest play of my entire football career. I can envision myself crossing that finish line. This is gonna go down in infamy. And he was right because he was going the wrong way. You see, what had happened is Roy got hit He got spun around a couple times, lost his bearings, and he was facing the wrong end zone. And he's running for it, baby. And who's going to stop him? Not Georgia Tech. (laughs) No. They're like, go, go, Roy. Come on, you know. Sucker made it 65 yards until his own quarterback tackled him at the one. (laughs) And from then on, he was known as Roy Wrongway Regals. Isn't that sad? But Roy would have never stopped on his own. He had to get tackled by his own teammate because he was too confident in what he thought he knew. Folks, that is futility. It's working so hard when you're only contributing to your own defeat. The futility of your mind, that's not our outcome as Christians because we don't have that kind of futility. Our outcome is based on faith and the word of God and when that is what your outcome is based on, you cannot fail. It's a different outcome. And in verse 18 and following, Paul is going to unfold the decline of the lost. He's done this before. He did it in Romans 1. He did it in great detail and in great length back in Romans 1. If you recall, he asserts man knows there's a God. We just all are aware of that through the created order. We see the evidence of God. Man has this innate moral sense. We know right from wrong. 
okay? And so we proceed, but then man suppresses what he knows with his own corrupt reason, and he pursues what he wants, and eventually God just gives him over to a reprobate mind. And the result of that, Paul kind of rattles it all off in Romans 1, verse 29 and following, he says that God gave them over, and they are filled, he writes, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, he says they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's a whole lot of bad. And he does the same thing in Ephesians, but he shrinks it all down into about one phrase. And we read in verse 18, he says, they are darkened. They are darkened in their understanding. He just sums up their situation. And folks, we get another point of contrast here in your notes. Number four, we have a different perception. We have an understanding that is not like the world. Uh, the world has the result of, uh, it's, the, it's the noetic result of sin. Noe in Greek is your mind. Sin has an influence on your mind. Uh, you're darkened. You become darkened. You see facts, but you don't interpret those facts correctly because of sin. See, righteous people and unrighteous people, they can, res- they can recognize the same set of facts, when we look at the world, but the way that we interpret those facts, very, very different. Is that true? You can have a conversation as a redeemed person with an unredeemed person, and, and you can agree on certain facts, but, but you come to different conclusions about them. You could ask an unrighteous person, uh, do men exist? Oh yes, men exist, that's a fact. What's the purpose of a man? Uh, well, it depends. Do women exist? Yes, yes, women exist, that's a fact. What's the purpose of a woman? Well, you'd have to ask her. Do, do babies exist? Oh, babies, yes. Unless you're talking in the womb, then it's a little hazy. Could be tissue. Outside the womb, yes, that's a fact for now. You see? You see? Evil. Does evil exist? Uh, maybe. Maybe evil exists. If, if something happens to me and I don't like it, yes, but others might not agree. You, you see? Does nature exist? Oh, yes, nature exists. How did it get here? Oh, that's easy. Well, trillions of years ago, there was a big bang out of nothing and nowhere, and Crystals formed on the backs of, and they just kind of trail off, you see. But we interpret these facts differently because it's all subjective. There's no final re- uh, reference point, And eventually, even basic facts get blurred. And we, we receive things adamantly, and then other things are very, very fluid. You know, man-made global warming, fact. Certain vaccines, fact. Don't worry, I'm not going there. But a, a person with male genitalia says they're a female, we've got to accept that because it's fluid, you see. And so we, we get a blurring, and John said that Satan has deceived the nations. Paul said the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. And according to Paul, what is the result of this spiritual darkening? And he continues, he says that, that they are darkened in their understanding and alienated, alienated from the life of God, that's the final result. And we've got another point of contrast here in your notes, number five. There's a different experience. The unbeliever cannot experience the life of God because they are alienated. You ever watch a 3D movie? Well, those, those have kind of come in and out of popularity over the years. They came, they came out 
for the first time, I think in the 50s maybe. They made a comeback when I was a kid in the 80s. I was talking with Billy Gillespie uh, this week. We were somewhere where there used to be a theater in Burlington. And he said, this is where I saw Jaws 3. And I remember that Jaws 3, it was Jaws 3D. I remember that, the shark's like coming at you. Whether you saw it in 3D or not, it was a terrible movie. But have you ever tried to watch a 3D movie without the glasses? That's fun. I took my kids to see one of those How to Train Your Dragon movies a while back. And, you know, I got the glasses on and we're watching this movie. I drop something. And so I take my glasses off to find it. And I, I look up at the screen and, I'm, you know, I, I get a migraine looking at the thing because it's just this, this massive blur of light and sound and, and uh, flashing and things like that. You cannot enjoy a 3D movie the way it is intended if you don't have the right glasses, if you don't have the right vision. Folks, if you are alienated from the life of God, you are not experiencing life as God intended. Your vision is off. You're, you're alienated. He, he wants you to see relationships as he intended, mankind as he intended, the home, family, stewardship of money, government, all these issues of life. And if you're alienated in your lostness, you will not have that perception, that experience. And this is why, frankly, I reject this philosophy that so many in church culture have become enamored with, so many pastors who have bought into this, that somehow I've got to contextualize the word of God for the unbeliever. I've got to make this book say something that will resonate with a lost person, a non-believer, someone who is unchurched. I can't always do that, folks, because there's very little in this book that applies to the unbeliever. There's very little. It's not going to do them much good. There's one command that's of value to the unbeliever before they can access the rest of this book, repent and turn to Christ. Then there's a whole lot. That applies. But if you're lost, there's not much good in this book for you until you turn to Christ. And the reason is you can't understand it. You don't have the spirit. And so you can't apply what you don't understand. And the second reason is you can't enjoy God's ideal if you don't know God. You can't receive a gift if you've never met the giver. And so that's why we do it this way. And the reason for this alienation, Paul says, as he goes on, he says it's because of the ignorance that is in them. They're ignorant. What are they ignorant of? They're ignorant of the truth of God's word. You know, it used to be when you called somebody ignorant, that was a derogatory term. You're, you're insulting them. A am I saying that they're stupid? No. Can you be intelligent and yet ignorant of something? Sure. You can have more degrees than a thermometer and still not have knowledge of what you need. And so in this case, the knowledge they need is the word of God. Why don't they have knowledge of it? Is it because we're not explaining it clearly enough? We're not, we're not taking the time to, to, to speak it? No, it, it's deeper than that. It says that it's, follow along in the scripture, it's due to their hardness of heart. It's due to their hardness of heart. You see, newsflash, people don't get real pumped when you tell them, hey, you're lost, sinful, and corrupt, and you need Jesus. Their natural reaction to that is, how dare you? Whoa, 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 whoa. They, they don't like that. And it doesn't matter how you say it. You're like, well, couldn't you say it nicer than that? It doesn't matter. The implication is they cannot achieve what they need to, to, to have done in their life. They're not able that insinuation is an offense to someone who has not humbled themselves. 
To receive that, they must become humble. So instead, they get outraged. They're disinterested. They're not ignorant because no one has shared it with them. They're willfully ignorant, okay? Uh, The reason is the hardness of heart. Now, let's take that further. What's the underlying reason for this hardness? Well, according to Jesus, in John 3.20, he says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. The preceding verse says, men love the darkness for their deeds are evil. Light exposes things and they don't want it exposed. There's an intentional rebellion. They're happy with the way things are. They're doing it their way. They like that. They don't want anybody telling them any different. We're not talking about ignorant yet innocent here. There is a willful ignorance here. Uh, Romans 1, if we went back there, Paul starts off in verse 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the, you don't suppress something you're not aware of. You suppress that which you don't want to get out. You, you don't want it spoken. They don't want to hear the truth because they already know it on some level. In their heart, they know what's right. Paul says they're aware of God. They, they, they have this innate moral sense. They've got a knowledge. They know something about the dignity of man. They know it's wrong to take a life. They know something about good and evil. How do they have the knowledge of good and evil? Because that's the name of the tree Adam and Eve ate from. And we've all got that now. The knowledge of good and evil. But we suppress that truth. Paul says in Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. Futile. Futility in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And by the way, even so-called righteous people can hate the light. You know, you, you We've all heard these stories of Christians in the public eye, leaders, high profile folks in the Christian community and a scandal breaks and it's revealed that they've been engaging in some sinful behavior that's been hidden away, kept in the dark and when those stories break and it comes out, it's, it's devastating and we treat it like it's a tragedy. But you know what, it's not a tragedy. It's, it's something, it's a blessing when those stories come out. You know why? because they're not in the dark anymore. Nobody gets healed in the dark. It's a blessing by God to allow that to come to life. It is the mercy of God when he busts us in our sin. Because otherwise we will degrade, we will sink into that which we are not intended for. And Paul says all men know God, but they refuse to honor the one they have awareness of, they become fools. Now back to Ephesians. Why does this hardness of heart remain? In verse 19, he says, they have become callous. They've become callous. And this is another point of contrast in your notes. Number six, there's a different sensitivity. There's a different sensitivity. Callous in the Greek, apalgeo, uh, it means no pain. Past the point of pain. You ever get a callous? You ever buy shoes that were too tight? You know, and, and, and you're walking around and there's pain and you're like, ah, I'm, I'm just going to suck it up. I'm going I'm to, I'm just going to, I'm going to tough it out. And you walk around and over time you develop calluses. Does that mean the shoes fit right now? No, they're still too tight. It's just, you don't feel the pain like you once did because now you've got 
calluses. And, and there is a callousness upon the souls of men. Their conscience becomes calloused, becomes seared. No sensitivity there for the lost who repeatedly reject. We learned about the sin of abortion on uh, a couple Wednesdays ago. We looked at Jeremiah 18 and 19, and I talked about what was going on in Israel at that time, how the Israelites were engaging in hideous, uh, idolatrous practices. They were sacrificing their infant children to this demonic false god named Molech. And they'd done this for 300 years. How in the world did they get to that point? It didn't happen overnight. Didn't happen overnight. Probably what happened was they started with a sense of pride. They're like, we're the covenant people. God made a promise to our ancestor Abraham. He said, through you, I'm gonna bring the Messiah. That's, we're the people of the Messiah. And so out of that pride, they look around and they notice these pagan cultures around them and they see what they're doing and they start to dabble in a little bit because they're like, we're the covenant people. We can, we can do this. And they dabble a little bit. It's small at first, but it kind of grows and it, it eventually overtakes them. And they get so immersed in this pagan habit that they become desensitized. They become unashamed. And Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 6, 15, he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. And this next line kills me. He says, they did not know how to blush. Folks, does that describe our world today? We have an unblushing culture that we live in. And it's increasingly vile. And people are not ashamed at all. There was a time I believe in our society where even the lost, even the unrighteous would blush. There were concepts that, that were offensive to all, Christian or not. There was, a, there was a, a general sensibility about some things and that, that, is, that has kind of gone away. And we look at things and just when you think it can't get any more vile, it becomes more vile. And so we have as Christians something that the lost do not have, that even the Israelites did not have, which is a new nature. You've got an indwelling spirit that recognizes good from evil, that reminds us of what it is that we were called to. And so when you encounter that, you've got every bit as much confidence as a believer in Christ as Israel did, as the people of the Messiah, but you've got that new nature that they did not have. And folks, that nature should not ever lead you to a place of arrogance where you think I can dabble in this and be untouched by it. And let me just say this. If you are a Christian and you are engaged in an activity behind the scenes and you're not blushing about it, it may be that you haven't merely forgotten how to blush. Perhaps you're just a professing Christian and you never did know how to blush. Is there an authentic faith there? because I believe that there will be an awareness of wrong and of sin. Authenticity, very, very important. We talk about authenticity a lot these days. I have a lot of people asking me about what's going on in Kentucky this past week at, at Asbury University. Uh, they say, is that a real revival, Pastor Scott? Is it real? Is it not real? Is it authentic? What is it? I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. I'm not God. I can't see into people's hearts. I see a lot of things to celebrate. I see a lot of good things. I see people worshiping God, young people in droves, 24 hours a day, I think that's good. Is it a real revival by biblical definition? No idea. 
And I respect the leaders at Asbury. They came out with a statement. They said, we don't know if this is a real revival. Often when a revival is legit, you won't know for about 100 years because it won't be until then that you can trace the effects of that revival. Because here's the thing about revivals. They, they don't just stay in one spot. It's not a destination that we go to as tourists. They spread like fire. And they go out and a commonality of all true revival is repentance and brokenness and confession of sin and people get saved. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, is that happening with this one? It may be. I pray that it spreads and I pray that there's true revival all across this country. We need it. We need it. And I've heard that it began in, in Asbury because people were confessing sin and acknowledging flaws. And I rejoice in that because that is the opposite of this callousness that Paul is describing here. And when we are sensitive, we have a humility and an understanding of the things of God that the world does not. And we look weird to the world. They look at us and they see the way we respond to things and react to things. They're like, why do you care? Why do you go to that church every weekend? Man, it's Sunday. That's, that's your day off. You could be sleeping in. You could be at the beach. You could be at a sporting event. What are you doing there? What, why do you give your money to that church? That's your hard-earned money. What are you giving that away for? What is that dusty old book that you base your life on? You keep reading that day after day and, and making all your decisions based on what you read that a bunch of dead guys wrote? What is that about? Folks, why do we do these things that are so weird to the world? Because we're different. Because we're transformed. Formed. We are what we, uh, what God has made us, not what we used to be, which is what the world is. And Ephesians 4.19 goes on, concerning the lost, Paul says that they have given themselves up to sensuality. They've given themselves up. Very important phrase, don't miss that. What does that imply when you say that they've given themselves up? It implies a prior knowledge of that thing which was evil, that they have surrendered to because they're giving, they're giving themselves up to it. It's not something that they have always pursued because they thought it was right. They were not desirous of it at one point, but they got tired of fighting it, and so they have given themselves up to it, you see. This is, this is not something that you know to be true. You don't give yourself up to something that you know is good for you. Nobody surrenders to diet and exercise. They surrender to chocolate pie and fried cheese. That's what... We surrender to, you don't look at a guy who's ripped with washboard abs and go, man, he's really let himself go. No, 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 this, this is giving yourself up to sin. The perverse idolatry in the Old Testament, it's described in 2 Kings, it says, and they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil. They sold themselves that means at some point after they give themselves up, now there's, there's a selfish ambition. They, they have a, a craving, a want. He says, Paul says in Ephesians 4.19 that they are greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They are greedy. Uh, and this is another point of contrast. Number seven in your notes, there's a different hunger. As Christians, you have a different hunger than a worldly lost person that's given themselves up. There's a craving now. There's a, an insatiability on the part of the unredeemed that have given up. It's one thing to be conquered and enslaved by something. It's quite another to willingly embrace what you know to be wrong. It's like, it's like spiritual Stockholm syndrome. 
You, know, you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? What is that? That's when someone who's been kidnapped begins to identify with their kidnapper. And they begin to have affection toward their kidnapper. The most famous example is Patty Hearst. Back in the 1970s, heiress to the Hearst fortune, granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, she was kidnapped by a terrorist organization, the Symbionese Liberation Army. And they kidnapped her, they snatched her for political uh, leverage, financial leverage. It was all over the news. We gotta get Patty back. Poor Patty, she's suffering. And then a few months later, there's footage of Patty Hearst in a beret holding a gun barking orders at a bank robbery conducted by this terrorist organization. And she'd been brainwashed and she'd experienced this desire to support and join the cause. She'd gone from being a captive to being a participant. And in the Christian, or not the Christian, in, 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 the, in the life of the unbeliever spiritually, the way this works is in their state of lostness, people know what is right, they know what is wrong, but they repeatedly reject God, they reject, 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 ignore, ignore, ignore. And instead of thy will be done, they say my will be done. And at some point, known only to God, God says, okay, it's what you want. I'll let you have it. And he gives them over. Paul says, this is the wrath of God. Yada, yada, yada. And then he says, and he gave them over to a reprobate mind. That is the wrath of God. We think of the wrath of God as like tornadoes, uh, fire, earthquake, flood. Mm, no, the wrath of God is letting us have what we desire in our flesh. And we destroy ourselves. And then we really begin to desire that and only that and we get greedy. The word greedy implies that we're insatiable. We're never satisfied. We just want more, 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 more. We try to fill that hole and it's a bottomless hole. Boy, does that describe our culture? Just, just utter depravity. There's nothing decent anymore. Culture is topsy-turvy. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. For a lot of Christians, it used to be the worst thing we could imagine is that same-sex marriage would be legalized. Well, that's come and gone. It was not gone. It's law of the land, right? I do remember that the argument against same-sex marriage by those who opposed it, they said, well, where does it end? Where do you go after that? I mean, what do you do with a guy who wants to marry three women or, or five guys or what have you? And, and the comeback by the world was like, oh, that's a slippery slope argument. We stop talking crazy. Get out of here. They're talking it over now. It's the logical next step, you see. And why not? Why not? This is where it all takes you. Because we regress. I was watching HGTV with my wife a few years ago, one of those home improvement shows, and they have couples on there, and they'd had same-sex couples, but now we saw a throuple. A throuple? We're inventing words for depravity now. That's three people, in case you were curious about that. But every culture declines. Most eventually go down hard in flames. And folks, we will too. Eventually. Gonna happen. Uh, in the 1600s, America all had this kind of a, a common Protestant view of man, of God, of redemption. Truth was seen as revealed, as absolute. 1700s, the Enlightenment comes. Reason is elevated. The Bible is relegated. Uh, our view of God became this rationalistic theism. No longer is he a Trinitarian God. He's just kind of this nebulous divine figure. And we uh, come to a conclusion about his will based on our own best reason. In the 1800s, nature 
nature and science take center stage. You got Darwin and guys like that coming in. And we began to look at moral philosophy. God exit stage right now. We're going to look at these moral philosophies to determine right and wrong. By the 1900s, uh, people have given up uh, uh, rooting things in scripture. They start questioning absolutes. They start asking one another, what do you think is right? What do you think is wrong? It's now 2021. We're in the 21st century. God is dead. We're into secular humanism. No absolutes. And even churches are intrigued by this concept of deconstructing our faith to cater to subjectivism. I mean, who are we, really, to to say that there's one interpretation of Scripture? And you'll have people on a platform like this that will get up, and and if if they preach literally out of the Word of God, they're labeled arrogant. But if they get up and they proclaim... Uh, the merits of some ungodly behavior, something that God abhors, and they hold it up as something to be celebrated, they're seen as loving. They're seen as authentic and humble. Depressed yet? (laughs) Hey, that's our world, right? We really do need revival. We really do need revival. But, (laughs) but, since I've bummed you out, Paul says, but, and I love it when Paul says, but, there's a celebration coming. He says, but, verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. There's something different about you. You you have a different drummer than the world. Uh, You're in this culture, but you're not of this culture. And it's always been that way to a degree. Paul didn't live and exist in a culture that accepted him, nor did Christ. And in your notes, number eight contrast here, we've got a different mind, a different mind. He writes in verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, that's the good news. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you two saying. Where's the truth? You see, back in the garden, Adam had the truth. He had it. God created him in perfection. God revealed himself inside, outside of Adam. Then Adam chose to sin He was darkened, lost the truth. The image of God was distorted. Where do we find the truth now? It's not in us any longer because we're all children of Adam. We're all darkened. Where's the truth? Scripture calls Jesus the last Adam because the truth is in him. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so we gather as we do today to tune in to that truth through the word of God. We're like people back in the Cold War, you know, across Europe, East Berlin, Russia. You had this this communist, atheistic, humanistic uh, mentality that swept across and they banned God and they banned Bibles. And they said, you gotta trust and believe and worship the state. We're your God. And there was a program called Radio Free Europe And it was founded and funded in America and they broadcast stuff to penetrate beyond the Iron Curtain and share truth about freedom and dignity of man and God and absolute right and wrong. And the Soviets tried to jam the signals of those transmissions. And Radio Free Europe had people whose whole job was dedicated toward toward overpowering the jamming of the signals so that the message could cut through that iron curtain. And people would gather in in, in, uh, darkened uh, apartments uh, around a radio to listen 
to the truth. Folks, the church gathers, circles up to listen to the unfiltered uh, truth of the word of God and the world tries to jam the signal as best it can. It floats all of these distractions out there to try to throw us off course, but we gather so that we learn this transmission of God properly, that we may disseminate this. And Paul says, here's how you no longer walk as Gentiles. Verse 22, you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. We're back to lifestyle now. We've come full circle. What are some things about your old life that are different now? There were things that you omitted in your old life. You omitted prayer. You omitted Bible study. Repentance, assembling with other believers. There are things that you used to commit, okay? Sins of omission, sins of commission. You used to commit the sin of using your own reason, to determine life and and decisions, to determine right and wrong. You used to hide your guilt, you used to lie, you used to cheat, all of that was natural to you, but now it's not natural to you, it is unnatural to you. Now you say, but I still sin, yes you do. Is that because I still have an old nature? Well, we often say things like that, we say you've got a dual nature, old nature, new nature, that's not actually how the Bible characterizes it. When you come to faith in Christ, your old nature is put to death, it's put to death. You have a new nature. You are a new creature. But the reality is you still live in a fallen world and part of that fallen world is your flesh. And so your flesh is corrupt. So you are perfected spirit encased in corrupted flesh. And Paul says that your flesh is corrupt through deceitful desires. It is, this is present tense in the Greek, it is being corrupted constantly by deceitful desires and these are the, 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 the uh, passions that war within us that are rooted in emotion, okay? They're not thought through. They're rage-based. You ever make any good decisions based on emotion? Never, never. When we're impulsive and, and we, we respond to and obey our flesh, our body, and we, we think if we do this, because I want to do it, it's what I desire in my flesh. It must be a good thing. Paul says there's an alternative to acting according to the flesh. He says in verse 23, be renewed by the spirit of your minds, okay? The spirit of your minds. Don't respond to your body, don't respond to your flesh, don't respond to the culture around you. Be renewed, be new. You are new, you're not old. Be New, the opposite of corruption is renewal. The opposite of flesh is spirit. And so this has got to be the spirit through your mind influencing you. And he says in verse 24, put on the new self. Just put it on. It's who you are. Live that way. Be who you are. You know, the world says be who you are. That's not what this means. They mean be who you are in your flesh. This is be who God says you are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is the final contrast. Number nine, we got a new image. We got a new image. I've said it before. Adam was created in the image of God. When he sinned, that image was distorted. We are no longer in the image of God as fallen people. We're in the image of Adam. A a beautiful baby is born. People look at that baby, they go, oh, look at that. Created in the image of God. Not exactly, they're adorable, they're cute, don't get me wrong, but that baby is in the image of Adam, 
not God. Now, that's your first birth. Your first birth, you're in the image of Adam. The second birth, you are recreated in the image of God. And that is who you are because your conversion is exactly that, a conversion. It is a total transformation. You are radically different than you once were. Now listen, if you believe that and you embrace that and you put that into use, would that not change everything practically for your life? Let's pray. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come down to the front right now. And it may be that you're sitting here today and you've had a realization. You, you realize that the reason that you have not comprehended much of the scripture, that you keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, and you're coming up empty is because you've never responded to the one valuable command the scripture has for you, which is repent and turn to Christ. And you say, I'm tired. I'm tired of living by my best guess. I'm tired of trying to figure out what's gonna make me happy because I, 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 I'm never satisfied. Nothing that I have pursued on my own reason has gotten me where I want to be. And I want something that's unchanging, something that's timeless, something that's transformative. I'm ready to trust in Jesus. If that's you today, every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I wanna invite you to pray with me and to make the most important decision that you'll ever make. And hear me, it's not a magic formula. It's not these words that are going to save you. It is the truth and the reality and the authenticity of your heart as you respond to Jesus right now where you are. You pray along these lines with me, okay? Dear God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. And Lord, I, I've been faced with that before and I was turned off by that truth. I was offended by that truth. I was like that guy running toward that end zone. I knew where I was gonna go. But Lord, I realize I've been going the wrong way and I'm ready to turn around I wanna repent, I wanna, I wanna confess my sin to you and I wanna be healed by you. I wanna trust in what you did for me because I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I'm trusting in what he did for my eternal life, which is not just about where I'm going when I die, but it's about right here, right now. I need life and you're the only source. And I'm receiving that gift of grace right now. Would you come into my life? Would you be my savior? In Jesus' name, now every head continues to be bowed and eyes are closed in this moment. If you're out there today, you prayed that prayer for the very first time and you meant it, would you just slip up your hand right now and indicate the decision that you've made for Jesus in this place?
Amen.